This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Rob Tombrella is a pastor at Grace Church and the speaker on this message. Last week, Craig talked about prayer, opened up this topic of prayer, and this morning we're also going to continue the, uh, the topic of prayer as it relates to renewal, as it relates to intensifying our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, if, uh, if you were to ask me, how do I renew my marriage? How do I take something that is, is good and how do we renew it? How do we make the sparks light up again? How do we light the original match? Uh, how do we revive that relationship? Or how do we get through this conflict that we're having with finances? Or this challenge that we're having with sex? Or this issue that keeps coming up in our marriage? How do we get through that impasse so that our relationship is reconnected and renewed and revived? I might ask a number of questions, but we would probably end up on the same topic, and that is the topic of communication. Many times, in order to revive a relationship in our lives, we have to do the hard work of communication, working on how we're talking to each other, what we're talking about, how often are we talking, those kinds of things, communication. And so it's probably no surprise to hear, especially from a preacher up on a pulpit, that the secret to reviving our relationship with God is very similar. It's found in doing the hard work of working on our communication with God and asking the questions, how are we addressing God? What are we talking about? How often are we talking? How's our communication? But this is an obvious problem to a bunch of people that are terrible at communication. If you get yourself in trouble all the time because of the wrong thing you said or the lack of communication in your marriage or in your friendships or on the job or something like that, you could say, you know, I'm terrible at communication. How in the world would I ever talk to God? Where do I start? How do I get moving? How do I even begin? I mean, you might be here going, okay, wouldn't it be great to have a perfectly reliable source, like from heaven? Like if we could have a perfectly reliable source reveal to us exactly what to say to God and exactly how to say it so that no matter who's in here or where I'm at, I could begin today to communicate with God in a way that pleases him. Well, you're in for a treat. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus tells us exactly what to say to God and how to say it what to say to God and how to say it so that as a disciple, we can be renewed and revived in our relationship with God. And he kind of lets disciples in on a secret 
of his personal prayer life. So I want you to go all the way back 2,000 years into a garden, following Jesus around, walking with him, you know, you know, fully listening to everything that he says and watching how he lives his life, just like the disciples in this story, and asking the question along with them, teach me how to communicate with God so that I'm gonna be renewed and revived in my relationship with God. We're gonna look, look at Luke 11. The first four verses, Jesus tells us exactly what to say to God. And then verses five through 13, he says how to say it. What to say, how to say it. Let's pray and get going. Father, even as we approach this topic of prayer, we need your help. We approach this topic from all kinds of different angles, all kinds of different frustrations, temptations, perceptions, failures, successes. And so God, we need your mercy to fill our hearts and to communicate to our minds exactly what we're supposed to think of when we think of communicating with you in a way that honors you and in a way that pleases you. So would you have mercy on us in this way? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, what to say and how to say it. Let's look at the first four verses. So Luke 11 says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So it's not a, a strange thing for the disciples to watch Jesus do something and then to ask Jesus, show us exactly how you did what you just did. In other words, something was really impressive that they just witnessed. They watched him pray. And the way that he prayed was different than how they were praying. The way that he was approaching God was different than the way that they were approaching God and they need to be taught. And so as all good disciples, they went to their rabbi, their teacher, and they said, teach, teach me. Teach me to do what you did. Show me how to pray like that. And so they say, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. In verse two, he said to them, when you pray, say. Now I wanna, before I get into this, you, this is a very familiar passage to many of you. What Jesus is teaching here are, are themes, not a rote, memorized sort of uh, liturgy just for the sake of just memorizing these exact words and then that's exactly what you are to say. He's talking themes, he's talking topical subjects. Does that make sense to everybody? We're not talking about, if you just memorize these exact words, maybe you were taught that as a child, memorize these exact words and that's exactly what you say to God. He is saying, these are the kinds of things that you talk about. These should be on your list of things to talk about. If you've ever, uh, str <laughs> if you've ever struggled in a dating relationship and you've ever approached it going, I don't even know what to talk about. I'm nervous, I, I've run out of things to say. Maybe you made a mental list of topics that you're gonna cover. Um, this is what Jesus says. These are topics to cover. When you talk to God, talk about things like this. So here's what he says. When you pray, start this way. Say this. The first is an address to God. Here's how you're going to address God, and it's revolutionary. This probably is the thing that got their attention the, bit, the most. Start by saying, Father. 
start with Father. That may not sound revolutionary to you, but for the Hebrews and the uh, disciples and the Israelites to ever approach God and call him Father in that intimate, close way was absolutely revolutionary. We sort of take it for granted. He is the almighty, holy one. He is the glorious one, the unapproachable, sovereign God of the universe that dwells in unapproachable light. And now Jesus is saying, when you approach him and when you address him, start here. Start the way I start. Do it like this. Call him Father. Now, what are you saying when you call God Father? Well, a couple of things. You are acknowledging a submitted relationship. So when you call God your Father, you're recognizing he, he is in charge. You are in charge. You have total authority over me, and I'm submitting myself to you. I'm submitting my desires to you. I'm submitting my request to you. That's what children do as they approach a father. When they approach dad and they say, dad, they're acknowledging who they are in the relationship. You are not who I am. I'm submitting myself to your total authority and I'm coming to you, but I'm coming to you as the one who recognizes you're in charge and I'm not in charge. And that's how, how we're to approach him. So submitted but then also acknowledging an intimate relationship. So, so Jesus is saying, this is revolutionary. When you approach God, acknowledge who you are and who he is. And th that the relationship is one of total authority, but it's also one of intimacy and love and warmth and affection. That's the way fathers think about their kids at least good fathers. And that's the way kids who are cared for and loved by a father think about their father. I'm submitted to you, but I love you. And I'm acknowledging who I am in the relationship and I'm acknowledging who you are in the relationship. Now I recognize that for some of us in here, thinking of God as a father is probably tough for you. And the reason it's tough for you is because maybe you didn't have a great dad. Maybe you were emotionally insulted, maybe emotionally abused by your father, maybe sexually abused, maybe physically hurt. Maybe he was passive in the relationship. And so even though he was dad or father, the relationship wasn't close for you. And it was a very challenging scenario and it affects you to this day. Maybe there's still wounds there to this day. So to even think of God as a father is a challenging concept for you because maybe you never had it modeled for you. There's others of us in here that, that you didn't get trained up. You didn't have a great example in front of you as being a dad. And you're failing as a father. You're thinking, man, I'm, the, I'm a terrible dad. And I, I should do more. And I should be more. And I should be doing this and that. And, and you carry that into that word father. And so sometimes you struggle a little bit with that. Well, what we're going to see here today is that when Jesus is talking about his relationship with this father, he's saying this is a father unlike any father in his perfection, in his love, in his kindness, in his grace, and in his desire to know his, his kids. Now, um, when you think of the almighty God being approached as father, maybe a helpful illustration is to think of it this way. 
when, when JFK took off, office, sometimes all my illustrations end up at JFK. I'm going to repackage my illustrations and say JFK in the gospel, like, and submit that to, to you. I have this weird obsession with JFK. Anyway, when JFK took office, what was interesting at that time in history was that there wasn't a young president that had taken office in a while. And uh, especially not one as visible as this family. And so Time Life came into the White House and photographed a bunch of shots of little John Jr., who was like two, and little Caroline, who was like three or four at the time, running around the White House. And uh, you can still see those online somewhere. You know, little John Jr., playing underneath the desk at the Oval Office, just sitting there doing his thing, playing hide-and-seek there. And Caroline had a, had a pony that she would freely ride around the White House gardens named Macaroni. Now, that's pretty funny, pretty silly to think about Caroline saying, Dad, is it okay if I have a pony and ride it around the White House gardens? And him saying, yes, sweetie, that's okay. Is it okay if I name him Macaroni? Yes, sweetie, it is. Because she's sweet Caroline. She's sweet Caroline. And she's his daughter. Now just think about the human relationship there. When JFK's in the Oval Office... There are hundreds of people who have worked their entire life, congressmen, secret service agents, senators, vice presidents, that have labored their entire life for the opportunity to be in that office where the president is so that they have the privilege and the right to call the president Mr. President. Mr. President. But there are two humans who have the right to run right past every Secret Service agent, every senator, every congressman, and crawl right up into the lap of Mr. President and call him daddy. And call him dad. And talk about the pony. <laughs> and talk about playing. And talk about life. And that's the privileged relationship that, that we have and that Jesus is acknowledging when we approach the almighty mister in control of all things and we approach him and we can call him father. So it's revolutionary. I think for some in here, renewal and revival is one word. It's father. It's for the first time in your life grabbing hold of this word and letting it go from right here and right from black words on a page to right here in your heart where you start to address God as a loving father with an intimate relationship who cares for me. So he says, start there, address him as father. And then he says, say this next, holy be your name. Do you see that? It says, hallowed be your name. Sort of a word that we're, we're, we're losing out of the English dictionary, but it basically means this word holy. So when you're holy, you're set apart. And so this is what he's saying. Say to God, Make your name set apart from all other names. Well, what's in a name? What's the big deal with, with saying that first to God? 
Well, a name is a person's reputation. Even to this day, if you ruin somebody's name, what can they sue you for? Defamation of character. That's right. If you ruin somebody's name, and that's just a, a human name, they could sue you and say, you defame my character publicly. You, my character. So everything about me is in my name and reputation. And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, ask God to make his character and his attributes set apart from everything else. Like Psalm 138 two says, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. So it's saying, God, here's what I want first. Before I get to my request, before I get to my challenge, my burdens, my scared things, my weaknesses, first, make your name set apart, Father. Set your name and your character and your attributes far above anything I'm about to ask for and hallow it among the nations. Make the nations treasure it for the treasure that it is. To love it for the thing and the glory that it is. Psalm 8 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So listen, above every name that gets lauded and applauded and loved and exalted in our culture, and there are plenty of names and brands and celebrities and people, start here. And above your name, God, exalt Set apart your name in all the earth, over all things in my life. Set it apart. So just pray like that. That's a theme. Start with Father. Move to the theme of his name being exalted in the earth. And he says, keep going into the kingdom. So he says, your kingdom come. Now, that means the reign of God. Anywhere where God is reigning in a visible, manifest way, in his love and in his justice and in his truth, that's where the kingdom is. And we spread the kingdom by making disciples through the preaching of the gospel. Any, anytime a disciple surrenders their life to Jesus, the kingdom has come and culture is changing where that disciple is. So what we're asking for is, God, let your glory that I see as a disciple, that I see in your word, let it be visible and manifested and on display everywhere that I am. Everywhere that I'm going, everywhere on the job site, everywhere in the home, every relationship that I'm concerned about, let your kingdom come and let it advance and let your truth and your justice and your love be manifest and clear through the preaching of the gospel. So two huge things right out of the gate. Talk about the name of God. Talk about the kingdom of God. And once you get those two buttons on the shirt, and you're dressing him as father, then you can drill way, way, way down into the nitty gritty of what you're really concerned about. The, the, the felt needs, the emotional tugs, the fear, the weaknesses. Here's where he says, then go into your daily needs and the provisions that you need. So verse three says, give us each day our daily bread. He says, this is how you're supposed to pray. When you approach your father, pray big and broad and then go right into the daily stuff of life and say, God, these are the things I need you to provide for every day. And in this case, he's saying daily bread doesn't get more daily than that. Doesn't get more 
specific, doesn't get more, more simple than asking for daily bread. And we, we should ask for daily bread, but this is not just bread. This is just your daily provisions. What do you need? What do you need that you need to ask God for? What are those daily provisions that you're concerned about? James 4.2 says it this way. Oftentimes we desire and we don't have, so we murder. We murder in our hearts when we hate somebody or we're jealous or we covet. We murder in our hearts and we're just like, ah, you have what I desire. You get it. I don't get it. I hate you because you got it. That's what we do with our desires, James 4.2 says. He says, you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He says, that's what so much of your marriage conflicts are all about, is that you, you covet and you, you're not getting and you fight and you quarrel. And he says, you do not have because you do not fill in the blank. How would you answer that question if you didn't know what that verse was? In this Western American culture, how would you answer the question, you do not have because you do not what? Probably, I don't know, try hard enough. You don't have because you don't plan well. You don't have because you don't think on it enough. There might be somebody here that says, you don't have because you don't worry about it enough. And you need to worry like I do about the things that you need in your life. Because worrying is good. And certainly Jesus told us to worry. Well, no, James 4.2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask your father. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you. He says this incredible verse in verse 24 of John 16. He says, until now, he tells us to his disciples, until now, you have asked nothing in my name. He says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. We think, well, I, I must just want joy more than God wants joy in my life. And Jesus says, you can't match the kind of joy I want to pour into your heart and into your life. You can't match it. You can't top it. Ask, ask in my name because you've got a father who will give as you ask. So, so he says, ask for daily needs, ask for daily provisions. He goes on. And four, verse four says, forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So Jesus says, this is also something that you should pray for. When you're asking God to forgive you of your sins, and this isn't a statement about, you know, I've lost my justification with God when I sin and now I need to reestablish my justification with God because I've sinned and now I've lost it again. So now I'm, God, would you forgive me and place me in relationship and union with Jesus? No, he says, you are in union with, with God through Christ, through me. And yet you sin all the time. And uh, because you sin and you're in relationship with God, you need to tell God you're sorry regularly for how you sin against him. That's how it works in every relationship, okay? I, when I sin against my wife, I, I'm not concerned that the relationship is now severed forever. I am concerned that our communication isn't what it needs to be. <laughs> 
and it might be a little icy cold if I don't humble myself and say, I'm sorry, and will you please forgive me for the silly thing that I said or the attitude that I had? That's how relationships work. That's how friendships work. You, that's how it works. You've got to ask for forgiveness. But notice that he says, when you're asking, you're ass- the assumed thing is that you're willing to do the same towards others that have sinned against you. You notice that he's teaching while he's saying, ask for forgiveness from God is, God, forgive me of my sins as I forgive everybody who is indebted against me. Because that's the attitude Jesus has towards you. That's the attitude the Father has towards you. 70 times seven. If we approach God and say, God, with sincerity, please forgive me of the sin that I've done a thousand times. He forgives. He forgives everything that we're indebted to him with. As we approach him by faith, he forgives and says, should you do no less? Ephesians 4 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. As God in Christ forgave you, and in this forgiven relationship, we can approach God all the time and say, God, I'm, I, I, I need your forgiveness for the silly thoughts that I've had or the dumb thing that I said or the attitude that I've had. And as I'm asking for that, I, I forgive by your grace anybody who's indebted to me. He says, pray like that. He says, that's revolutionary disciples. You start praying like that instead of harboring that bitterness. Some of you think, man, God, it's right that I'm bitter about this. It's just right. It's good. You know, it's some kind of justice that I'm maintaining by being bitter about this. No, it's a, it's a, it's a cancer in your heart that needs to just be released from you. And you need to forgive somebody that's indebted to you as God in Christ has forgiven, has, has forgiven you. Okay, he moves on. He says, um, pray about God, forgive me. Renew me. Forgive others around me. And then lead us not into temptation. Now, he's not assuming, that's not a prayer saying, is God a, you know, leading me into temptation so that, that's awkward. Like, God, please don't lead me into te- temptation. Is he, you know, testing me or something like that? No, he's just saying, it's just a request to say, God, give me spiritual protection because I'm a target. I'm under attack. Now, you, when you watch the life of Jesus, you, you do notice something that he is always under attack. Now, he always wins, but he's always under attack, right? And then when you read the book of Acts, you notice that about disciples too, that they're always under attack. There's always some resistance. There's always some tension. They've always got to pray and ask God to break through the resistance and the tension and the challenge to remove the mountain and help them keep going and keep making disciples and stay unified and all of that stuff. He says, this is just an assumed thing. You are under attack from a rebel force that hates your love for God and you need to be protected. Jesus will say in another prayer moment before he goes to the cross, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Why? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We have weak flesh and so we need help. And so this is a prayer for protection. And we need to add it into our prayer life. If it's not already there, we need to start asking God, help me 
to resist evil. It's another place that this prayer shows up in Matthew. Help me to resist temptation, to resist evil, because certainly Satan's fiery darts are coming at me. Now, uh, it's not hard to pray when you realize that there's a looming threat. So like last week, when that storm came through, Denton, it wasn't hard for me to ask God to protect us. I am a weenie when it comes to thunderstorms. Texas thunderstorms scare me. Um, Maybe it was that movie Twister that came out several years ago, but tornadoes put me over the brink. Now, I'll never show my kids because I'm too machismo in front of my boys. (laughs) But when that storm came through last week, and I'm telling them to huddle up in the bathroom because at one point they said, it's right over Paloma Creek. The, the funnel is right over, nothing's touched down, but I, I mean, there's, I'm like watching the news and they're going, it's right over you. And I'm like looking around outside and it, it looks ominous and I'm telling them to go sit and I'm, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying out loud. I'm praying in Jesus' name, baby. <laughs> I'm praying protection. I'm praying with power. I'm saying yes. I'm saying amen. At one point, two of, I'm looking out the window and two of my boys are, uh, they're crying because they're he- the hail's coming down. And uh, one of my other boys is running through the, the house with a Bible saying, Dad, you need to read this. Dad, you need to read this. You need to read this. It was his way of coping with the fear. But I was like, I, I do need to read that, son. Actually, I think that's God speaking to you right now to me. I do need to read that. Because it's not hard to pray whenever you're, you, you see the threat around us. But there's an invisible war around us. The, the, the storm cells are around us every day. And we don't know when that, that storm is going to hit our lives. So Jesus says, pray every day like this. Lead us not into temptation. So here's how we're going to close. That's the themes to pray about. Jesus says, there it is. You want to know how to pray? One of the secrets to pray? Pray like that. Talk to the transcendent one with incredible eminence and intimacy by calling him your father. Submitting yourself to him, recognizing the intimacy. Ask for his kingdom to advance over all areas of your life. Ask him for daily provision, whether that's food or the light bill or the, the, the job interview or the sales call or the homework after school with the kid that doesn't want to do homework. Um, it's daily needs. Give it to the Lord. Ask him for help. Um, it's forgiveness of sins. It's an acknowledgement that I'm forgiving everybody around me and being freed from that responsibility. And then it's spiritual protection. Lead us not into temptation. Now, how do we say this? How do we go about this? Because Jesus doesn't stop there. He keeps on going. He keeps on teaching. Notice what he says. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. So here's the, the tension, okay? Um, 
there's two problems, a late night visitor and no food. That's the, the parable that Jesus is saying. Late night visitor, how many of you had a late night visitor, they're hungry, you don't have anything to feed them. So I'm either gonna be a bad host um, or I'm gonna, out of desperation, go do something a little crazy. So that's what Jesus is saying. This is a, a setup for a pretty funny story. So Jesus is saying, pretend that this happens. You have a friend that comes at midnight and, and they say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. So this friend has to go across the street at midnight and say, I need some food. Totally out, pantries are gone, didn't know this person was gonna arrive. They're expecting something. I'm gonna miss an opportunity. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I just need three loaves. Can you please help a brother out and give me three loaves? And then he says, and he will answer, verse seven, from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. So, so he just ramps up the scenario a little bit here. Not only is it midnight, not only is he waking up his friend, the friend says, if I open up, the scene is the doors back then were really large, clunky doors, and the kids are sleeping right over here on a mat. Little kids? Little kids, right? You open up that big, creaky, clunky door, what's going to happen? All those kids are going to wake up at midnight, and then what's going to happen? Pandemonium. All night long. They're going to get back to sleep? No, they ain't going to get back to sleep. You going to get back to sleep? No, you're not going to get back to sleep. You got to work the next day? You got to work the next day. So Jesus is saying, check this out. This friend is being asked to open up his door, give the guy three loaves, maybe the kids breakfast the next day, wake up the entire house, kids are going crazy, sleep gone, craziness, pandemonium. And so he says, uh, verse seven, the answer probably would be in whispered tones, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. They're sleeping right over here. And he says in verse eight, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. So he says, just forget, forget using the language friend at midnight. There are no friends at midnight. <laughs> Jesus, it doesn't matter. You're friend, pal, buddy. That doesn't matter at midnight. He says, he's not going to do this because he's his friend. Yet, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. You see what he says there? Jesus says, not because he's his friend, but because of his impudence, he will rise up and give him whatever he needs. Now, impudence, maybe some of your translations say persistence. Um, it's a very funny word in the Greek, only shows up here in all of the New Testament. And here's in essence what that word means. Because of his shameless boldness. That's what it means. Not because he's his friend, not even because of the need, but because of his shameless boldness. He will get up and give him whatever he needs. In other words, Jesus says, 
the neighbor gets up and does stuff because of the sheer nerve of this guy. The nerve, the gall, the moxie, the guts. You gotta have guts to walk across, think about it tonight, walk across your na- the, the street, knock on your neighbor's door at midnight and ask him to turn all the lights on in the house, wake up his kids and let you have access to his fridge. <laughs> Does that take guts? It takes serious guts. Gotta be crazy to do something like that. Gotta have a lot of nerve to do something like that. So you can say friend all day long, but you better have nerve to go do that. Now, what's the point of the story? Well, here's the point of the story. The point of the story is not that God is similar to your angry, reluctant neighbor at midnight. Sometimes that gets misread. God's like that. He's just angry, reluctant neighbor. No, he's not that. It's not that he's similar. He's not that friend that you just have to say the right words to. It's that God is the exact opposite of that neighbor. And what Jesus is emphasizing right here is if a groggy, tired, irritated neighbor friend responds to boldness, how much more a gracious and loving father. If your neighbor would do that for you and get you whatever you need need just because of the sheer nerve and boldness of the request, how much more a gracious, generous, loving father would get up and get you everything that you need? Well, how do we know that that's exactly what he's saying? Well, he goes on. Look, he says, he says, verse nine, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now, definitely there's persistence there. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Those are all continuous kind of actions, he says. But he says, for everyone who asks, receives. Hear that. Hear that. Everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. Notice the promise that Jesus says. Everyone who asks, this father receives. Everybody who seeks from this father will find. Everybody who knocks on the door of this father will not get an angry, irritated neighbor, but will get a generous, kind, loving father who will open up the door. How do we know he's talking about a father? Well, he says that in verse 11. What father, hear that? What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Like, here you go, kid. Dad, can I have a fish? Sure, kid, here's a serpent. I mean, he's, Jesus is saying, this is ridiculous. And he also kind of indicates kind of how we view God. Surely if I ask for a fish, he's just going to give me a serpent. He says, no, that's not what God's like. You think God's like this. You think God is miserly? You think God is cruel like your earthly fathers? And he's not. Jesus is saying, get that out of your brain. He's not that way. 
If you ask him for a fish, he's not, instead of a fish, going to give you a snake. Verse 12, or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? And Jesus is saying, that's ridiculous. That's so outside of the bounds of who this kind of God is. And then he says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So he says, you know what? You have evil desires. You're not consistent as a dad. You're not a perfect father. In fact, you, you are evil at times as a father. And you would never do that to your kids. You would never give them a scorpion if they ask for an egg. You would never give them a serpent when they're asking for a fish. Says, that would be crazy to you. How much more crazy to think of God that way? How much more crazy to think of this generous, kind, loving father in such terms? He says, if you're evil and you would never do that, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so somebody might say, well, what's he slipping in there? I, I was asking for daily bread. Now he's talking about he'd give the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit is the means by which every answer is prayed for. And he is the greatest gift that God could ever give because the Holy Spirit is the very life of God in us, connecting us to our heavenly Father forever and ever and ever. So every one of these requests in verses two and four finds its ultimate place when the Father in his generosity gives the Holy Spirit. And here's how we know this. Galatians says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. So this amazing grace of this father is that he would send his very son to give his life as a ransom so that enemies become kids, sons, daughters. That's love. That's generosity. That's the kind of father that we're approaching. And additionally, Galatians goes on to say, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because we're sons, because we're adopted sons by faith in Jesus, he put his spirit in us. And the life of God, heaven itself, exists in us. So we're no longer slaves, but we're sons. And if we're sons, we're heirs of God. God owns all things and is the sustainer and the maintainer of all things. And we are his now. We are his sons and we are his daughters. Now, Jesus doesn't explain all the mysteries that are related to prayer and when do I get my prayers answered? Like, when will God answer this? Or why his answer doesn't always look like my answer? But the point is this. Jesus is telling us that if God is so willing to give the best of all possible gifts, that's what the Holy Spirit is. He is the best of all possible gifts. And if this father is so willing to give the best of all possible gifts, look at verse 13, to those who ask him. So if you ask him today, 
for the Holy Spirit, this God will give you the best of all possible gifts. He will give you his very life. He will give you his very life. His life over you in Christ and his life in you through his spirit, if you ask. He is so generous. No matter what you've done and however you come into this room, if you ask him for the Holy Spirit, he will give you the Holy Spirit, which is the best of all possible gifts, then we can boldly ask him for lesser gifts and expect him to answer. And expect him to answer. He's going to answer that prayer. That is an incredible promise. So if you could all stand, stand with me. Here's how we're closing. We're going to spend a few minutes not long, but we're going to spend a few minutes in prayer. We're going to spend a few minutes asking God for all the things that we're burdened with, all the things that we want to see him move in our lives. The daily provisions, spiritual protection, maybe calling God your father and just acknowledging that relationship for the very first time. So what I want to ask you to do is I want you to be bold here. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.